Today, many people are enslaved to sin and bondage because they don't know the truth that Jesus came to set captives free. And he wants us to know the truth because the truth will set us free. Are you a slave today to sin or are you a slave to righteousness? Better than that, are you a slave or are you a son? You're listening to I Am, a sermon series at Shoreline Church. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. In our text this morning in John chapter 8, we're going to see Jesus communicating some ideas to the Jews, and we're going to see how Jesus continues to be misunderstood by them. They just can't seem to get who Jesus is trying to say he is, why he's come to earth. But today, for the first time perhaps, They actually get it. They actually understand him. And we're going to see what they do next. They do the unthinkable. They try to kill him. Oh, you're saying that? We're going to kill you. Uh, And so we're going to see three contrasts in our text together this morning. Here's what we're going to do today. This is our time together. In this outline, we're going to see, first of all, uh, Jesus is going to ask them, are you a slave or are you a son? In verses 31 through 36. And then he's going to ask them, are you a son or daughter of Abraham? or of the devil, of Satan, verses 37 through 47. And then the Jews are going to turn back to Jesus and say, well, we have a question for you. Are you demonic or deity? Uh, And so we're going to begin with the first contrast that Jesus poses to the Jews in verse 31, and that is asking them, are you a slave or are you a son? Look at verse 31. Uh, Jesus says to the Jews who believed him, that's important, you want to circle that, He says this to them, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free or set you free. Now, who's Jesus speaking to? Verse 31 tells us these are not the Pharisees that didn't believe him. No, these are the Jews in the crowd who believed him. But if you notice, there's a little bit of a distinction here. They didn't believe in him, okay? Uh, It's possible to believe Jesus without believing in Jesus. Like, yeah, I believe that, you know, he's a good man. I believe that what he's saying is probably, you know, nice and and accurate. I believe him without believing in him. You could be here today and say, I believe in the historical Jesus. A man named Jesus lived and he died. But that doesn't mean you've placed your faith in Christ Jesus for salvation. And so that's why Jesus says, hey, you're my disciples if you abide in my word. Uh, The word abide We're going to get into later in the book of John, but here's what one person translates it. They said it means to welcome it, being at home with it, living with it so continuously that the word becomes part of the believer's life, a permanent influence and stimulus in every fresh advance in goodness and holiness. So it isn't merely believing in Jesus like, yeah, this guy's believable, Uh, but it's deeper than that. It's believing in Jesus, placing our hope and our faith upon Jesus and abiding in Jesus and in his word. And so it's not how you start the race, it's how you finish it. And these people are not really placing their faith in him. J.C. Ryle said it this way, it's not in the beginning, but continuing, which is the test of true grace. And so it's interesting to me that Jesus is saying this to these men who it says in John's verse that they believe him, but they're not actually following him. And we'll see later, they try to kill him. Uh, This happens. As the word of God goes out, there are some who will listen, uh, but not all will receive it. Uh, One time Jesus told a parable of the sower, and what we learn from that story is that, um, listen, the gospel seed goes out, uh, and it's planted in lots of people, uh, but it also has a tendency to be destroyed by a variety of things. As he's telling that parable, sometimes Satan will take the seed and steal it when that person doesn't fully understand the gospel. Sometimes trouble or persecution or trials will come. People we love die. Uh, Things happen to us that we weren't expecting. Uh, And it says that that person, Jesus says, they'll fall away on account of the word. Other times the seed seems to take root and things go well, but the cares of this world or the deceitfulness of wealth grow up next to the fruit and they um, choke it and eventually destroy it. And so the point shouldn't be lost on us this morning. Often, not rarely, often, The gospel seed doesn't take root in someone's life. We know faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And many people have heard. Uh, Many people in America have heard, but that doesn't mean Americans are all Christians. Morris says this, this section of the discourse is addressed to those who believe 
and yet do not believe. Clearly, they were inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but they were not prepared to yield him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust in him implies. This is a most dangerous spiritual state. We could call it the nominal Christian. And I want to just challenge you today that if you are the Christian that just kind of puts your foot in the water to test it out and say, oh, I'm just going to see if this Jesus thing, if this church thing, if Christianity is real. No, that's not what true faith is. And so I want to challenge you today to lay your entire life, your future, your soul, your will upon the Lord Jesus and to receive him as your Savior. And so Jesus is in effect saying here, your future, your future loyalty to my teaching will prove the reality of your present profession. Uh, but notice what he says next, or they said in verse 33, we, and we're going to see this back and forth throughout our sermon this morning. So they said, we are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Remember Jesus just said, the truth will set you free. They said, how, how, how are you saying that about us? We've never been in bondage. And Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So stay with me. They get one thing right and everything else wrong, okay? The one thing they get right is that they are Abraham's descendants, okay? Biologically, forensically, clinically, culturally, yeah, they're Abraham's descendants. So they're not wrong there. And we'll, we'll unpack this idea in a minute, but that's all they get right. Everything else they just said is outlandish and ridiculous, okay? The Jews... We're not just in darkness like we learned last week and that we need to be the light of the world. They're also, according to Jesus, in bondage, okay? They, they argue with Jesus here in verse 33 and say, hey, hey, like, what do you mean we'll be free? We've never been in bondage. But Jesus reminds them, anyone who has sinned, anyone who commits sin is now a slave to sin. But we learn this elsewhere in the New Testament. On the screen, Romans chapter 6, verse 16 Paul is asking the Romans, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, and where does sin lead? It leads to death, or of obedience, and where does obedience lead? It leads to righteousness. Now, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm not a fan of the New Living. I don't read the New Living translation as much. But here is that same verse in the New Living, maybe to help understand it a little clearer. In the New Living, it says this, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. You see, guys, a slave to sin leads to death. A slave to righteousness or obedience leads to righteousness. Either way, though, in either of those cases, you're going to have a master. Even Bob Dylan said it. Remember that? Remember Bob Dylan, he said, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you gotta serve somebody. Good, both of you know that, that song. Think of the tyrants that men today serve. Jesus says, you're a slave. You've got a master. Now, none of us today would literally, in conversation later over coffee in the back, as we dismiss the service, say, hey, pastor, it's good meeting you today. And yeah, my master, um, you, know, you may call your boss a taskmaster. Man, he's a slave driver. But we're using that uh, as a colloquialism. We're not saying literally, I'm a slave to a master. But think of some of the masters that people are serving today, these tyrants uh, of ambition. Think about the love of money the passion for drunkenness, the endless craving for pleasure or entertainment, the desire for prominence or affluence. Think of the master of lust or greed or gluttony or selfish pride that keeps people in chains. All men or women alive today are in bondage to someone. And it's as simple as that. You're either a slave or you've been set free and now you're a son or daughter. Now, as these Jews tell Jesus, hey, we've never been in bondage to anyone, I can almost hear like a, co a collective record scratch in the background. Can you hear this? There's a record scratch in the back of the, of, the, of the room. If this scripture were being read in England on stage and the person reading Jesus's words had a British accent, you could almost hear him say to them, don't be daft. Like you'd almost hear that. Don't be daft. What do you mean you've never been in bondage to anyone? Uh, if I were Jesus, I would say, Really? You've never been in bondage? Okay, kids, we're now going to have a geography lesson. It's time for Geography 101. And I would say, all right, kids, and I'd show them a map and say, does anyone know where Egypt is? Can anyone point out Egypt on a map? And, and then the kids would say, ooh, ooh, I know, I know. And they'd point to the, 
to the northeast portion of Africa. And then I'd say, okay, great. Does anyone know where Assyria is, the Assyrian Empire? And another kid, oh, oh, I know, I remember history. And then I'd say, okay, cool. Uh, what about Babylon? How about Persia? Do I hear Greece? Hey, who's in charge as Jesus is saying this right now? Rome. Can anyone identify? We would have fun naming all of these, these empires, literally, who Israel, listen, was in bondage to militarily, politically, monetarily, physically, socially, culturally, linguistically, and I mean, I'm running out of words that end in L-Y, that Israel was in bondage to empire after empire, multiple centuries, multiple generations, multiple occasions. Israel was always in captivity, it seems like. (laughs) But see, Jesus here, even though that's erroneous, he says, no, 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 I'm not talking about political bondage, I'm talking about spiritual bondage. He says, the one who sins is a slave to sin. And Jesus says, even if you think you're free, you're really in chains. If you're a husband here today that's addicted to pornography, you're sinning against your wife and you're not free. Uh, If you are an unbeliever here today, you don't know Jesus, and you think your life lived apart from God is joyful and free, well, you're not really enjoying true life. You're actually not free, according to Scripture. The rebellious teen who thinks, hey, you're living it up. No, you're not living it up. You're actually slowly dying. You're not free. You're anything but free. And notice what Jesus says next in verse 35. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, don't miss this, church, verse 36. If the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You shall be truly free. Now, there's some big differences between sons and slaves. Please don't miss this. On the screen, it's a little bit small. You might need your reading glasses. I wanted to fit them all up there. You can't see that, so I'm going to read that to you. Okay, sons or slaves. A son, or a slave rather, can be bought or sold. Now, I know parents. (laughs) I know you've thought about it. You've thought on certain days. He's a teen now. Can I sell him? Is this a thing? No. No, a son is born. A son is born. A slave is bought or sold. Uh, Not only that, but slaves must work for the boss's approval, but sons work from their father's approval, not for it. You're already approved, son or daughter. God says the father to his son, this is my beloved son, in him I'm well pleased. We've been imputed his righteousness, so he's pleased in you. You don't have to work for God's approval anymore. You're a son. You work from his approval. You get it? You're, You're a slave. That means your position is owned, okay, your property. A son's position is beloved. They are posterity, not property. A slave will never receive an inheritance, only a paycheck, if even that. Whereas a son is not an employee, he's part of the family. Slaves live in bondage, and they're always under the threat of fear. Always under that threat. What if I get sold? If I mess up, am I going to be killed? I'm just property. They live in bondage. Sons live in freedom, and they, they live under the banner of love. See the difference? That's what Jesus is getting at here. He says, slaves don't abide in the house forever. Okay? You're not in the lineage, you're not in the genealogy of the family when you're a slave, but when you're a son, listen, nothing on earth can remove that reality. Nothing. You can change your last name, you can move to a different state, you can stop calling your parents, you can do everything you can do to disown them and distance yourself, but that never changes the fact that they are truly your parents. And Jesus says that as a son, Of God, he comes, the son of the father, to make captive slaves free, to make them a part of the family. And so the slave of sin cannot change his status by doing more, by trying to change. He'll be forever enslaved. No other slaves can liberate him either. It takes one capable of setting slaves free, and that's the one who comes outside of the ranks of enslaved humanity. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the son who has come to make you free indeed. And Jesus says, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It'll make you free from three things. Free from the penalty of sin. That crushing burden and weight of sin that leads to separation from God and eventually spiritual death. That's been defeated. Guys, we are now justified by faith. So as a Christian, you should not be staying awake at night um, crippled by a fear of hell. You shouldn't be. You are free indeed from the penalty of sin, no matter how your feelings lie to you this morning. You're free from the penalty of sin. Be free today. Be free indeed. Secondly, you're free from the power of sin. But because we live in the tension of the the already but not yet, we're kind of in this theological space, we have to live our lives 
uh, being sanctified and offering our bodies to God and not to sin. And so though we may still give in to sin as a believer, sin's power has been defeated. And so we're, we're free from the power of sin. We really are. We don't have to submit our life to its damning control. Paul said it this way in Romans 6, right before that last verse we looked at, sin shall no longer be your master, for you are not under the law, you're under grace. So you're free today from the penalty and the power of sin. But not only that, thirdly, Jesus will one day make us free from the presence of sin. Uh, we will enjoy that in eternity forever as we dwell with the Lord and sin and death are forever removed. So man, we, are, we as Christians are, are truly free. We are free indeed, whether your feelings lie to you or not. One person said this, if we're slaves of sin, then we may be transferred from its household and brought into our true home and our Father's house. Here then is the blessed hope for us all. Jesus says, not just hearing the truth, but knowing the truth, abiding in the truth, this will liberate you completely and eternally. But you must receive the Son, and God must now be your Father. And so Jesus now hones in on that idea, and there may be some of you here today that have not yet um, gone from slave to son or daughter. You've not gone from one household to the other. And so Jesus now says, no, so here's your household. Here's who your father is. Look at this next section. Is your father Abraham or is your father Satan? Look at verse 37. He says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I've seen with my father and you do what you've seen with your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Okay, so if I can have your attention, they're correct in stating that Abraham is their biological um, ancestor. Not wrong. But they're wrong in calling Abraham their their Abba, their intimate father. They're claiming sonship, but they're not acting like his children. You guys see that? But Jesus is saying, yeah, you're acting just like your father. Have you ever heard that? Has someone ever said that to you? Like, oh, maybe growing up, you're acting just like your father. Sometimes that's a bad thing, right? That's like a cut down. Other times that's a compliment. And so Jesus is saying, no. Uh, they're like, oh, you mean Abraham? He's like, no, I'm not talking about Abraham, your other dad. And so I love what David Gusick says. He says, our spiritual parentage is what determines our nature and our destiny. If we're born again, born a second time spiritually, and we have God as our father, it will show in our nature and destiny. But if our father is Satan or Adam, it will also show in our nature and destiny, just as it shows in these adversaries of Jesus. Notice in verse 37, Jesus says, my word has no place in you. Man, what a sad indictment on any person. No place in, no place in your head, no place in your heart, no place in your morning, no place in your calendar. You've got all this time, you've got all this energy, you're scrolling Instagram, but my word has no place, no place in you. Does that describe us? No place in our life, no place in our lips. Living a contrary life to God's word is a hint that his word has no place in us and that we are not true sons. And that's kind of Jesus' next point. He said to them in verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Okay, so they may be descendants according to the flesh. The word of verse 37 is seed, literally. So he's like, okay, so according to the seed, yeah, but not according to the deed. Does that make sense? Like you, you may have come from him physically, but you're not living like he would spiritually. Some of you have heard this, not just you're acting like your dad, but you look just like your father. You ever heard that? Like, oh my gosh, you have your father's eyes. You have your father's ears. Uh, sometimes people say that about our, our personalities. Um, our, our family, Team Benham, our daughter, London, looks a lot like me. So everyone's like, oh, you look just like your dad. And um, I'm, I'm looking at how they're saying that. Like, is that a, are they saying that in a good way? Like, oh, you look just like your dad. Or like, oh, you look just like your dad. <laughs> and then my son Aiden looks a lot like Jen, my wife. And so people say, oh, man, that's so funny. You look just like, um, I looked up this week. There's some celebrities. It's a little bit creepy. Some celebrities have, like, identical-looking children. Look at this. Um, Reese, I guess her name's Reese Witherspoon on the left. Um, she is on the second. She's on the left, but the second one. And then I think that's Demi Moore on the right the far right, right? They look identical. I was like, man, that is crazy. That's more like, like mother, like daughter, but you get it, like father, like son. So who exactly is father to these Jews? We're about to find out. But first notice the cheap shot. 
when Kevin was reading this earlier, you should have winced at this, at this section. Look at the next uh, verse, verse 41. It says, then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Okay, so yeah, this is rough. They're taking a cheap shot. They're either saying, hey, we know your backstory. We know your family history, Jesus. Hey, we don't have a sordid past of illegitimacy like you. Okay? Remember, Mary was a virgin, and Joseph discovered she was pregnant. He, remember, he was going to divorce her quietly. Remember that whole thing? Uh, meaning he was going to break off their betrothal, but the Lord spoke to Joseph through the angel and told him, no, this is going to be the Messiah. Remember that? So even though that happened, nevertheless, the story got out, the scandal got out, and it would have remained even 30 years later. Like, who, who is Jesus' true father? And so that may be what these people are saying here. They're either doing that, or it could mean this. If you translate the word fornication in verse 41, uh, it can be understood as idolatry. So they could basically, they could be saying, hey, we've never committed spiritual adultery. We have always been faithful uh, to God. But notice how Jesus contradicts this in verse 42. Jesus said to them, okay, yeah, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. In other words, you can say all day long how much you love God, but you must love Jesus because he came from God. Now he's saying here, I proceeded forth and came from God. He's not saying I came from Mary. This is the a speaking to, of the pre-existent reality of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am the eternally begotten Son of God. So if you love me, uh, or if you love God, you have to love me. And this dismantles this nonsense when people say like, oh, I love God, uh, but I don't love Jesus. Okay? Jesus says that's, that's incompatible. And so then he says, why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Listen, church, it's not that these men can't understand Jesus. It's that they won't. And let me just encourage you. Sometimes you're trying to share your faith with someone and, and you're just hitting a brick wall. And sometimes that brick wall is not because you're not doing a great job explaining, right, the facts and getting the figures all down and having all the apologetic answers. Sometimes someone just doesn't want to hear. It's not that they can't hear. They won't hear. Morris says this, prejudices, jealousies and antagonisms made the real Christ inaudible to them, though his every syllable fell upon the ear. So who is their father? Jesus tells them in verse 44, look at it with me. You are, have you ever wanted to say verse 44? Like, I've got a verse for you today. I want to quote a verse to you. Uh, you are of your father, the devil. Okay, parents, please don't ever read that verse to your kids and say, hey, honey, we found a verse for you. Please don't do that. The desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. Another translation says from, uh, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of it. Okay? Now, I mean, <laughs> Jesus just said your dad is the devil. But, but honestly, if Satan's your father, then your home is hell. Wow. They're not literally Satan's spawn here, but through imitation, they're not imitating Abraham, they're imitating the devil through murdering and lying. Uh, pastor Brian Bell, Calvary Chapel pastor in California, said the serpent of old had enticed them away from the true God with the seductive apple of religiosity. But under the devil's clerical garb, he is both a murderer and a liar. You see, back in Genesis chapter 3, Satan wasn't merely attempting to get Adam and Eve to side with him. His point was not merely to deceive and plunge mankind into rebellion and treason against God. That's certainly part of it. Uh, Satan's ultimate purpose there was to get them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God had warned them that in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So Satan's role in the fall of man was nothing short of premeditated, cold-blooded, calculated murder. As soon as they eat this, they will surely die. I want to kill them. I want to kill off this creation. See, Satan is the wolf in John 10 that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He is a murderer. But not only that, Jesus calls Satan, their father, a liar. Okay? That doesn't mean that his words won't contain a sliver or some portions of truth. But the bottom line is that he'll use enough truth to deceive and distort the truth so that in the end, 
what happens is a defaming, a denying, or a destroying of the truth. That's what Satan does. And so Jesus says, hey, he's just speaking of his own resources. He's speaking his native language. If you're from France, you speak French. If you're from Texas, you speak cowboy. And if you're the devil, your native language is lying. It's lying. This reminds me of uh, Faust. Remember that character you grew up studying maybe in college, Mephistopheles? This is an interesting poem. He, he speaks of himself. I am the spirit that denies, and justly so. For all things from the void called forth deserve to be destroyed. T'were better than were not created. Thus all which you as sin have rated, destruction ought with evil blent. That is my proper element. And that is, that is a description of Satan. He's only speaking lies and death. That's what he seeks to do. And yet here's Jesus speaking the opposite. He's speaking truth. Instead of murder, he's speaking words of life, words of truth, and yet these people don't believe him. And so he says, hey, I invite you, convict me of sin. You're not gonna be able to produce as much as a single charge. But not only that, but Jesus says, if you come from God, then you're gonna listen to God's words. And because you're not hearing me, you're not of God. And listen, church, the only way we can understand this is to realize that Jesus is saying, I'm speaking the very words of God. Only God could say what Jesus just said. Now, they haven't figured this out yet, but they're about to. And can you imagine someone in your circle of influence, in your family, or a person getting up here like I'm doing now and addressing you and saying things that only God could say? Like, hey, whenever I speak, you kind of should take notes because I'm speaking God's word. I am God's representative. I'm speaking his very words out of my mouth. And you need to listen because, you know, I'm pretty much God. Can you imagine someone saying that to you? How would you respond to that? Read this week about a lady who uh, went to visit her brother at a mental institution, and as she walked down the hall, the doctor was escorting her, and an older patient walked out of his room. And he said, my name is Jesus. And he introduced himself, and um, she smiled and tried to keep walking. And the doctor said, Larry, who told you that you were Jesus? And Larry smiled and said, God did. Well, right from down the hall, can speak the words that are happening here can only come from God. And there's no other way to understand this. Listen, this guy, Jesus, is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord, to use a C.S. Lewis argument. Now, they're not going to concede that he's Lord. They've already tried calling him liar. So now they're going to surmise he's a lunatic, he's insane, he's, he's possessed. And that brings us to our third section. They now turn to Jesus, and they say, you're possessed, aren't you? You're demonic, but you're not deity. Look at verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Okay, again, guys, this is abusive language. They're calling him a Samaritan. That's basically an ethnic or racial slur that's ever happened to you. Someone's called you a racial or ethnic slur. They've discriminated against you because of your race. Jesus can identify with that. They're trying to bash him and say something very rude to him. If Jesus isn't a pure Jew, they're thinking, then he's an enemy of Israel. If he has a demon, then he's unclean, he's insane. And if a man's making the claims that he seems to be making, he's gotta be either right or wrong. He's either Lord or he's a loony. And so verse 49, Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Are you following Jesus' logic? He's saying, I don't have a demon. I'm honoring my father. Someone who's demonically possessed or demonically driven is not going to bring honor to God. They would dishonor God. They would seek their own glory. And yet Jesus says, no, I'm in my right mind. Obviously, in verse 51, when Jesus says the word death, if you keep my word, you'll never see death. He's not referring to physical death, okay, because we know this, obviously, many believers in the Lord die each and every day. What he's speaking about here is spiritual death. You and I, church, we must square with the reality of death. We have to square with that reality. We've already learned that it's a result of the fall. And we've already learned that the one who believes in Jesus doesn't need to fear uh, the second death. We don't need to fear the separation from God for all of eternity in a place of torment either called the lake of fire or hell, okay? The euphemism the New Testament uses for the death of a believer is to fall asleep. And we're not trying to make a doctrine out of that, because that would be weird. 
But the idea is that it's almost like a graduation. It's, it's as calm and peaceful as sleep. You go from one state to another. It's graduation. Jesus says, if you keep my word, you never die spiritually. And listen, there's no way to misunderstand this, okay? This isn't the German Coast Guard asking you what you're thinking about. <laughs> there's no way to misinterpret this. And so the Jews said to him in verse 52, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead and so are the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who's dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be, okay? So stay with me. Their thought is simply this. Hey, Abraham's dead. The prophets are dead. How can you offer words that are gonna keep people from death? Okay, this was a claim by Jesus to be greater than Abraham or greater than the prophets. Abraham never delivered anyone from death and neither ultimately did the prophets. And so, hey, wait, this guy thinks he's greater than all of our fathers. You ever been, um, you ever been at a church and they're like, hey, we are the best church ever. We are the greatest church ever. Hey, I am the best pastor ever. Have you ever, have you ever sat in a service like that? Um, yeah, it, I have not. But I can imagine if I was sitting in the presence of someone, when I was growing up, there was this kid playing tennis on the tennis team. And he was playing against like an eight-year-old. And we were in varsity tennis. And he, he lobs up the ball. This kid was just trying to return balls back to us as we're practicing. And he lobs the ball and this kid's cowering. And he holds his racket up. I'm the greatest. And I'm just cracking up, you know, as he's making fun of himself ultimately, how great he is. And can you imagine someone in our life saying what Jesus just said? Like, hey, I'm greater than, than all men who have gone before me. That's either a true statement or it's a lie. And so they said, who, who do you think you are? Who are you making yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, verse 54, we're getting to it. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my Father who honors me, of whom you say he is your God. Yet you've not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Okay, wait. It's bad enough to say that you're greater than any Jew who ever lived. That's a, that's a statement. Uh, I mean, you can trace your lineage back to Abraham. That's a big, like all my ancestors, I'm the best. Okay, um, that's a stretch if I've ever heard one. But then you go one further and you say, no, 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 my father is God himself and I'm the only one who knows him. Okay, we are definitely in the county seat of crazy at this point, if this is merely a man saying this. But then you go one further and you say, hey, Abraham was, when he was alive, he was looking forward to me. And, and, and he rejoiced in my day. Okay, listen, this is beyond the scope of what any normal man in their right mind should ever say, okay? Now, as we study this, in what way did Abraham rejoice to see Jesus' day? In what way? Well, we know that God had promised in Genesis 12 to bless all the nations of the world through Abraham's seed and that kings would come forth from Sarah's womb. So maybe that's what, what Abraham rejoiced about. We also know when Abraham met this mysterious priest named Melchizedek, he was the priest of God Most High, and the writer of Hebrews develops that idea. This man gave him bread and wine in Genesis 14, and so maybe God was revealing to Abraham that there's a coming king according to the order of Melchizedek. That could have been it. But I believe it was when um, the Lord told Isaac through Abraham that he would provide himself as the lamb. Um, one commentator says this on Mount Moriah. Perhaps it's when he took Isaac to Mount Moriah to offer him as a burnt offering to God. The whole drama of the Messiah's death and resurrection was acted out at that time. And it is possible that Abraham saw it by faith. Remember, Abraham had the judgment, the, the fire, the knife. And the son, Isaac, took the wood and ascended the hill. And yet when they get to the top, he goes, hey, I see the wood, I see... I see all of the, this for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice? And God says, well, God will provide himself the lamb. And yet they don't find a lamb caught in the, in the thicket. They, they find a ram. And this is clearly a picture of the coming Messiah. But um, maybe that was what Abraham saw. But notice their objection in verse 57. Uh, the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? This is not speaking of Jesus' age. They're just picking kind of a round number. Like, you're not even 50 yet. You're, you're younger. How can you speak like this? Again, once again, showing their inability to understand divine truth. You guys see the misunderstanding? 
Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What they heard was, I have seen Abraham. But, but that's not what he said. No, he said, I'm greater than Abraham. I'm the object of Abraham's future thoughts, dreams, and hopes, all of his desires. Abraham looked ahead by faith to me. And so they're still misunderstanding him. And if that wasn't enough, we come to verse 58. Now, one of the biggest arguments against Christianity is a very small argument, but it's when people say, hey, Jesus, Jesus never said that he was God. Well, let me present to you John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay, notice what he did not say. Jesus did not say, before Abraham was, I was. He uses here, I want you to circle or underline or highlight that, those two words, I am. This is what our series is named after, the I am statements of Jesus, and this is the centerpiece of that statement, of those statements. Jesus uses a Greek phrase on the screen. Uh, it is ego I me. And the idea here, it's translated I am. This is not just him saying, yeah, I am. Like, is anybody up for some donuts? Yeah, I am. That's not the idea here. The idea is that this is a title, a name of deity. It's the name used by God himself when he spoke to Moses in the burning bush. Exodus chapter three on the screen, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, here's my name, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus says here, before Abraham came into existence, I existed. Abraham died, but Abraham also had a beginning. I don't have a beginning. Jesus says, I am. Not I was. You don't need to look back in your past and say, well, I've got all this regret and shame. He's not even I will be, right? The future can bring anxiety. Today has enough trouble of its own. And so for that, Jesus says, I am. I'm everything you need me to be today and every day. He's gonna be the I am for us always. God uses different names, different titles for himself throughout the scripture as he meets the needs of his people. And in John's gospel, we record seven different statements where Jesus says, I am. And he is sufficient, guys, for everything we need today. Before Abraham was, I am. Now this is a, an absolute, unequivocal statement of deity. Jesus right here is saying, I am God. And if you miss it, or if you're here and you're a skeptic and you're like, well, I don't, that is not convincing to me. Well, then explain to me why they do something that you only do when someone says something blasphemous. Look at verse 59. If Jesus is not saying that he is the one and the same God, the I am, then why do they do this in verse 59? It says, then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. Listen, to take up stones means someone committed a damnable sin, in this case, heresy of the highest order. They're blaspheming God. They're saying, Jesus, what you just said is to make yourself equal with God. And this is not the only time that they're gonna try to kill him. But this is perhaps the first time that the Jews actually understand Jesus. Isn't that great as a, as a husband to be understood? Isn't that great? Isn't that great as a wife when your husband gets you? And he's like, oh, oh okay. I thought you were speaking Spanish. Now I get it. Now I understand you. There's just a wonderful moment when two people get each other and there's kind of that click and you understand one another. In this case, not so much, not so great. They understand what he's saying and they want to kill him. <laughs> They're ready to end it, to end his life. A lot of misunderstandings out there. I've shared this story before. I think it's, it's appropriate here. Uh, I was talking to the students at BCS this week, Braden and Christian, about how my parents were Christian hippies. And I grew up in a home where we did peace signs, we had flowers, we had um, flannel sheets, and it was generally <clears throat> 70s and awkward. And um, uh, in, in that time frame, a lot of people, they were in kind of, um, were there any hippies here, any ex-hippies? You're like, once a hippie, always a hippie? All right, good. Um, yes, I love hippies. And so that's where my name came from, Pilgrim, right? Because no logical non-hippie would ever name their little beautiful baby pilgrim. <laughs> and so you don't name your kids normal names when you're a hippie. And so I, I was reading this story this week that um, 
that uh, kids were growing up with names like Pilgrim, names like Moonbeam, uh, Precious Promise, Love. And so there's a story where kindergarten teachers one day met Fruit Stand, all right? So talking about misunderstanding, okay? Every fall, according to tradition, parents would, would put name tags to their children uh, and kiss them goodbye and send them to school on the bus. And so it was for Fruit Stand. Um, the teachers thought his name was a little odd, but you know, tried to make the best of it. And so they came up to him, hey, do you want to play at the blocks? Fruit Stand? <laughs> and he seemed to answer. And so then later, hey, um, Fruit Stand, do you, want a, do you want a snack? How about some fruit? And so he kind of accepted hesitantly. And by the end of his day, his name wasn't much different than Heather or Sunray or Pilgrim. And so uh, at dismissal time, <laughs> The teachers led the children out to the buses, and they said, hey, Fruit Stand, do you know which, which bus is yours? And he didn't answer. And that wasn't strange because he hadn't really been answering all day. And, and that, you know, lots of children are shy on the first day of school. It's not that surprising. Well, the teachers had instructed all of the children on the other side of the name tag to write their children's bus stops. And so when they flipped the name tag around, they saw it printed there, Anthony. <laughs> Misunderstanding, right? For the first time, no misunderstanding. This is a big moment for the Jews. They finally get what Jesus is saying. And this has been tense throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, it's been frustrating as a pastor to see how dense they are. And they finally get it. I am God. It's as clear as day. And they try to kill him as a result. And what he's trying to say is, listen, I am God himself. And I'm here to redeem. I'm here to set you free. Now, I want to spend a few moments applying this passage of Scripture and ask us three questions. We're gonna take communion in just a few moments. But I have three questions as we kind of bring this home to us as a fellowship. So number one, Jesus brought it up. I wanna ask you this morning, who is your master? Who's your master? I didn't ask you, the people that brought you today, to elbow your husband. I want you to answer this honestly. Who is your master? Today, many people are enslaved to sin and bondage because they don't know the truth that Jesus came to set captives free. And he wants us to know the truth because the truth will set us free. Are you a slave today to sin or are you a slave to righteousness? Better than that, are you a slave or are you a son? You can be set free today by faith. And in just a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond by faith in our gathering. Are you free or are you enslaved? Who's your master? Secondly, who is your father? Who's your father? I read this story, crazy story. Here's how the headline reads, baby girls switched at birth, truth comes out 56 years later. 1953, two girls, two baby girls were born from two different mothers who had no connection whatsoever at Pioneer Hospital in Eastern Oregon. And these two little girls grew up happily, they got married, they had kids of their own, and eventually grandchildren. But then in 2009, their lives were turned upside down. The truth was they were mistakenly switched at birth when the nurses bathed these two little six-pound bald baby girls. Somehow in the bathing, they mixed them up and returned the babies to the wrong mothers. Well, everything changed when one day an 86-year-old woman uh, residing in a nursing home uh, phoned one of the, of the women's brothers asking to see him because she had something to get off her chest. She um, didn't want to identify by name, but she said your mother uh, insisted that she was given the wrong baby after the nurses returned from bathing the newborns, but her concerns had been brushed off. Can you guys imagine that? Can you imagine living 56 years only to find out you all along were in the wrong family? Wow. But see, it happens all the time spiritually. And most people think, hey, I'm just born into God's family. I'm American. I voted Republican, so I'm a Christian. No, they don't understand. Hey, I'm not bad. I'm just really not that bad, so I'm good. Or, oh, oops, I'm bad. Now I'm taken out of the family. But see, the opposite is true. No one is born into God's family automatically. You must be born again. You must be born a second time. Entering his family is a choice, and it's by faith. John chapter 1 says it this way. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I ask you this morning, who is your father? I didn't ask you if your parents knew Jesus or if you've heard of Jesus. 
Is your father God or is it the devil? You can receive Jesus today and you can be welcomed into the family of faith. So who is your master? Who is your father? Thirdly, I want to bring it home to you. Who is Jesus? Jesus says here, before Abraham was, I am. And he's either telling the truth or he's lying. And if he's lying, he either knows he's lying, which makes him a liar, or he doesn't know. If he knows he's lying, then why would he go to the cross and be in torment and yet be innocent? If he doesn't know he's lying and he's a madman, then how can you explain his righteous, compassionate living and his teaching that has, uh, that has influenced billions of people through the millennia with the balance of love? C.S. Lewis said it this way, the discrepancy between the depth and sanity and shrewdness of his moral teaching and the rampant megalomania which must be behind his theological teaching, unless he is indeed God, has never been satisfactorily got over. In other words, you can't today say he was just a good man. He doesn't give you that option. He was just a good man, he was a good teacher. No, he made statements like today, that I am, even before Abraham was, I exist. I am God. The most important question you can answer today is an eternal question that Jesus poses to you. Who do you say that I am? Is Jesus today a liar? Is he a lunatic? Is he Lord? And you can cry out to him, fireworks. You see, when you come to Jesus, he doesn't say, okay, you need to clean up your act. You need to, you need to make sure that you uh, don't smoke, dip, or chew, or hang out with girls who do. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, okay, listen, if you're going to come to me, you've got to come down the altar, uh, come down the aisle, come to the front here, and you've got to make sure you're, you're clean cut. And we've got to deal with some of, you know, like you've got bad breath. So get a mint, and let's make sure your teeth are brushed, and they're white, and let's get all of that dealt with. No, he says just come. You come as you are. You receive Jesus, and then he does that sanctifying work from the inside out. He makes us conform to his image as we come to faith in him. And so I want to encourage you today, in just a moment, we're going to give you that opportunity. If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I love you too much to let you leave today thinking that because you went to church or because your parents were Christian or because you live in America or because you have a Bible that you're a Christian, there is no such thing as nominal Christianity. And I've got to say that to us in Lakewood Ranch today. There is no such thing as true nominal Christianity. You're either for him or you're against him. There is no middle ground. There is no tiptoe into the pool. You either know Jesus or, and profess to know him and are living for him, and we can look at your life and confirm that, or you're not a Christian. And I love you too much than to give you a false sense of security when you stand before a holy God and you're judged for your sin because you never laid that judgment upon Christ by faith. Can I say that honestly to you? I love you. And I don't want you to leave today with eternity in the balance. Amen? As we close today, I want to invite the band forward. And I want to invite someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to sing a song in a moment. And during this song, we're going to be passing the communion elements. Now, if you've been a part of our church for any number of years, we usually have two cups that we pass out. If I can have your attention, we're not doing the two cups today. We have a, a tray of bread and a tray of one cup, okay? So you're gonna grab the bread and then you'll grab the cup and just hang on to those until we take communion together at the end of the song, okay? Everyone clear on that? Now please just take one piece of bread, one cup of juice. This week, go ahead and close your Bibles. This week, uh, we are gonna be having, uh, Ryan mentioned it earlier, we're gonna be having a night of worship and prayer. And what I'm asking us to do as a church is to abstain from something this week. Uh, we, this week, I want to challenge us to a corporate, to a church-wide fast. Now, often we fast because we're expecting something to happen, and so we're making a decision as a church. Or as a family, we're making a decision. Or uh, we're, as Paul says, we're looking forward to uh, the return of Jesus. And so, or Jesus even said it. That when the bridegroom's with you, you feast. But when he's departed, you fast. And some of us have never done this. We've never abstained from a meal or from a certain thing. And so we haven't stopped doing that and filled, appropriated that time with worship, with prayer, with waiting on the Lord. So listen, we're not just abstaining from a meal or several meals or food because that's just, that's just not eating. 
That's just missing a meal. Okay, we're gonna take that normal time that we would pray or that we would eat and we're gonna devote that time to pray. What we're saying is, hey, body, food is good. God has given it to us to enjoy, but God is better. So I'm gonna not eat this meal and I'm gonna rejoice in the Lord. I'm gonna take this time I normally would eat and I'm gonna dedicate this time to waiting on the Lord, to praying. And so I wanna encourage you guys this week, starting today, I know you've probably got stuff on the grill, but I wanna encourage you today to, f- to fast something. Some of you are hardcore and you're gonna fast like the whole time. That's awesome. Make sure you're prepared for that, okay? Make sure you're ready for that. Some of you are gonna abstain from a meal. Some of you are gonna abstain from social media. That's commendable. Or television or any of that technology. Please don't abstain from your marriage, from work, uh, from school, okay? Those are off limits, okay? Some of the students here are like, hey, I'm not gonna, dad, I'm gonna pray during, no, you need to still go to school, go to work, stay married. But I wanna challenge us as a church to say, hey, these are good things God has given us, but God is better. And so I wanna abstain from this. I'm gonna take the time this week to just refrain from this good thing God has blessed us with and just say, Lord, you're better. And we're gonna break that fast on Thursday night as we come together at the office and we pray and we worship and we celebrate together. Sound good? Whatever, whatever is, is on your heart to do, I encourage you and challenge you to do. It's gonna be different for any of us. And on our website, we've got some blog articles and one of them will talk about fasting. If you wanna know more about what that is and what prayer is, you can go on there and check it out. But just now for this moment, can we bow our heads? Can we close our eyes there? Maybe someone today, I don't wanna leave this place without giving you an opportunity to respond by faith. We know that the scripture says you can't come to the Father unless he is drawing you. And so, Father, I'm asking that today, this morning, you would draw a young person, a man, a woman, whoever that person or people may be, would you draw them to you, to your son today? Allow them, Lord, to have faith as they are quickened, awakened, regenerated by your spirit they'd respond in faith to you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. For more content, visit our website, thisisshoreline.com. Make sure to tune in next time as we continue our study through the Gospel of John in the series, I Am.